let's begin visualizing the merit field in front of us, all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, the lineage teachers, and ourselves surrounded by all sentient beings who want happiness and not suffering, but just like us in their ignorance, they create the causes of suffering, even though that's not at all what they want. So it's really important that we always keep our refuge very clean, clear. Yeah, our refuge is in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. It's not in groups, it's not in institutions. So think for a while what it would be like to not compare yourself to others. Not put yourself above them or below them or compete with them. What would that feel like inside yourself? And what would it feel like to go into every situation without all your assumptions about how you should be in relationship to them and what they are in relationship to you and what your standing is and what their standing is, but simply to go into situations with the view of 
we all want happiness equally, and we all want to be free of misery equally. What would that feel like? So with that kind of perspective of seeing ourselves all as equally valuable, equally deserving of happiness, then let's cultivate the bodhicitta motivation to benefit all sentient beings equally and to do that by becoming a Buddha with the full wisdom, compassion, and power. So, we've been in the ch chapter eight, yeah, chapter on meditation, which is primarily uh, meditation on uh, equalizing, exchanging self with others, and on how to develop shine uh, or um, serenity, shamatha. So, 
last week we talked about more in the part of exchanging self and others. We talked about uh, exchanging ourselves with somebody who is superior to us, no, inferior to us, and then look at our old self through the eyes of that person. And so there, uh, it's interesting how he has it here. It starts out that person's very jealous of our old, you know, we're, we're now the lower person looking at our old self and we're jealous of that person. Okay. But then halfway through the verses, yeah, uh, we go, but wait a minute. Uh, why am I comparing myself to them? Uh, you know, they are, are not, not so much that, but they said they were going to work to benefit all sentient beings and they're not helping me at all. And so the last verses, you're, you're not uh, focused on the jealousy aspect, but on looking at your old self and saying, well, you know, just who does he think he is acting like that uh, when, you know, he, he made the Bodhisattva vow and benefits into beings and he's not helping me and he's, you know, just going around being proud of his good qualities and, you know, not at all acting as, as he said he was going to. Okay. So, uh, so we had that last week, and then uh, Venerable Nawan gave a, a BBC about competition, which is the next set where you compete with somebody who's equal to you. And then yesterday, Venerable uh, Tarpa talked about um, being a people pleaser. So all th three of these really, really go together. And it it's, has sent me thinking. And I might uh, um, speak, well, we'll see how it goes. Um, <laughs> because my philosophy in learning Buddhism is that you take, I mean, I, you know, really believe in, in how the Buddha set this up. And when he talked about the equality of sentient beings, and so let's take that and apply it to social issues. Let's take that and apply it to just ordinary, uh, the ordinary way that people relate in social uh, conditions. Yeah, let's apply that to gender. Let's apply it to race. Let's apply it in everything. You know, I don't think that Buddha's philosophy should just be in one corner of our, our life, and then we have our old way of thinking. Okay, so I was thinking about this thing of competition and then being a people pleaser. Okay, what do the two things have in common? They seem to be very different. What do they have in common? Yeah, yeah, they're both very much about me. And how do I fit in? What is my rank? Do people approve of me? Am I doing the quote, quote, right thing? Okay. And we often don't approach situations with those 
well, those questions are, are under the the surface in how we look at things. We go into situations with certain assumptions of how we rank with other people. Yeah. And Shanti Deva is saying, well, we should go in with we're all equal. Yeah, we're all in samsara. We all want happiness. We all don't want suffering. Okay. But we're so imbued with social conventions, yeah, that we've been brought up in. It's been the water that we swim in from the very beginning. Okay. And so some things never get questioned. One of the things that, that brought this to my attention was some years ago when the Japanese Zen, um, uh, Japanese, no, Japan, the Americans who follow Japanese Zen uh, started to look at some of their teachers' behavior during World War II and that their teachers were very much in support of, of the Japanese imperialist government. And, you know, what they did all along East Asia and, uh, you know, what the, what the Japanese army did was horrible, yeah, in many, many countries. And yet, from the viewpoint of those Zen masters who were brought up in Japan in a certain climate, well, why question that? That's just the way things is are. This is our government. This is, you know, we're, we're superior. That's it. Okay. And when you grow up in that kind of thing, you have that attitude and you don't even realize it's a preconception that, and it's a filter that you're living your life through. You think it's reality. Okay. So that's what first, you know, made me really start to look at some of this stuff. But then, um when we bring in the thing of people pleasing okay now both men and women yeah it depends on your family it depends on your upbringing uh you could be taught to be a people pleaser but of the two genders which one is more emphasized to be the people pleaser women okay and so you're brought up in that climate of you're a people pleaser. And, you know, the men are superior and what they want, your duty is to please them. So in the family, as the wife, you know, that's how you please them. In office situations, how do you please them? You're the secretary, they're the boss. Okay. And so, uh, this kind of really permeates society, yeah, and it often is just taken um, for granted, and it's even found in Buddhism and in Buddhist texts. Yeah, bhikshus are superior; the bhikshunis are less than. Okay, so, so then, how do we approach these kinds of things? Yeah. And the conditioning that we've had, yeah, if you're 
brought up, and here I'm talking in broad generalities. It's not that all men think they're superior. It's not that all women are people pleasers. There can be a mix of the two things. It depends a lot on how we were brought up and what we're bringing in from previous lives, too. But, um, you know, how, how do we relate to these things as Buddhists living in a society in which these things are taken for granted, and uh, and also living in a Buddhist community where these things are taken for granted. Yeah? And if you question them, um, boy, you get in trouble sometimes. So, you know, if we look in terms of race, not in terms of gender, what Rosa Parks did was completely amazing, you know? What she did was not uh, unethical. It was not immoral. She just sat in a different seat. You know, when you look at it, that's how this happened. Yeah, instead of sitting in this seat, she sat in that seat. But in a society where people have so many, many, many deep-seated assumptions about how people can, should relate to each other, her seating, sitting in a different seat, yeah, which is nothing, has no meaning in and of itself except to relieve her aching feet for standing up so long, you know, then all of a sudden society's preconceptions come storming down on her and you know, she gets scolded, she got arrested, you know. It wound up being one of uh, one of the chief factors in the civil rights movement. Yeah, but all she did is one action that has no inherent meaning in it at all. But it shook up the social structure. Okay. So what what do we do? Do we, you know, risk, uh, you know, uh, upsetting the social structure? Do we go along with it? Um, do we please people because we want them to like us? Do we please people because we're cherishing them because they're sentient beings with the Buddha nature? And they've been kind to us in previous lives. What is going on in our mind when we are people-pleasing? Are we even aware of it? And if you're on the receiving end of somebody people-pleasing, do you experience it as, well, of course, I'm superior. They should wait on me. They should do this and that. Or do you receive it as, wow, sentient beings are kind, I want to, I need to work harder in my practice to be able to repay that kindness. Okay. So in all these situations, we can see what the, the chief thing that's important is what's going on in our mind. Okay. What kind of, what is our motivation? And then when do you challenge the social structures? And when in Rome do you do as the Romans do? Okay. And this requires a lot of wisdom, you know. You can't just go into another culture. And this talk, talk here 
is, uh, you know, refers to colonialism, yeah, where you go into another culture with the assumption that your culture is superior. It's not even an assumption for you. You know that your culture is superior, and everybody should follow it. Okay, and you're doing this out of great compassion, so that these societies, uh, you know, don't, you know, they can pull themselves up out of poverty and inequality and so on. Yeah. So, you know, I think some colonialists, uh, they were doing it just for the, uh, you know, the riches. Okay, and some, uh, probably especially. The Christian missionaries, they thought what they were doing is really good. You know, these people are heathens, and, and we're going to, to save them by teaching them about God and Jesus and all these things, and not thinking, oh, we're totally disrupting their culture and being disrespectful, and we're not even considering that maybe our own beliefs are conspiracy theories. You know, from the eyes of the other culture, you know, it isn't like Christianity and Judaism and Islam are superior religions. We were taught that in Sunday school. Yeah, because all these other people, they believe in many gods. That's, you know, they, yeah, that's, they don't think clearly. They don't know. But we have one God. We came up with the true vision of one God, and we're spreading that. So we're so compassionate. You know, it's like the the missionaries, the, the evangelicals that I usually wind up sitting next to on long flights, you know. I mean, one guy told me, I really have compassion for you. I want to teach you this so you won't go to hell. Yeah, and I said, well, thank you very much. But I think if I live an ethical life, like your God said, then why is your God going to send me to hell? Yeah. I was trying to put it in his worldview. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, long flights are quite a trip. <laughs> When you're sitting next to somebody who's trying to convert you the whole flight. Um, okay. But, you know, when when do we challenge these things? When do we go along? Okay. So, for example, when I go in the Tibet community, when I act here, I can act one way. When I go in the Tibet community, I act in another way. Yeah. Because if I acted the way I act here or there, they would just be horrified. You know, like, who do you think you are? Yeah. And then you see, even within the West, people who have absorbed that gender view again, it's like, you're doing what? Who gave you permission? Who's behind you? Yeah. In other words, you can't do anything without, you know, somebody superior, a man, telling you to do that and giving, you know. 
So it's an interesting thing to be aware of. Yeah. And I know here, because we try and do things equally, uh, buttons get pushed. Yeah. The, the men are not used to having a woman tell them what to do. Yeah. And so they react because it's against, you know, what they were taught. And what we were taught very often isn't in words. It's just by example. Yeah. And we just watch. And as kids, we, you know, we learn who sits where, who talks more. Yeah. I worked for a while with a Theravada monk who very strongly believed in gender equality, really strongly. And, you know, we were going to set up a monastery of gender equality. And, and, uh, <laughs> and then when we were uh, both living in a Chinese temple doing this, after meals, yeah, he would sit and pontificate with all the guests. And I would have to go clean up, you know, and uh, and that was just, I don't know if he even recognized that that was contradictory to his whole philosophy, but he was perfectly happy to do that. that he was not going to get up and clean up, yeah. What? He's... Yes, you're God. <laughs> yeah. But, so it's it's delicate. You know, when do you challenge because a society is ready to change? When do you go along? Yeah. What is your reason for going along? What is your motivation for challenging? Yeah. So these are all things we need to look at in our practice. But I think it's good to challenge them, yeah? Because what we see often, I mean, in a Buddhist community, is the men have the higher positions and the women do most of the work, yeah? And, you know, they're the ones running around and organizing things for the lay people and cooking and cleaning. And then the men go in and lead the service and whatever. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so is, is why are we doing that? What's our motivation? Are we aware of what we're doing? Is this something that should be challenged? Yeah. So here we're challenging that. Yeah. If you don't want to challenge that, you're probably going to be pretty miserable here. Yeah. But it it entails not only, you know, from the guy's side seeing, oh, I have this these assumptions about how the women should act, but also from the women's side of just, you know, this, this is what you do, yeah. You, do, you just do it, yeah, and, uh, and you keep peace, and your responsibility is to please everybody and make them happy because that way people will like you and respect you, yeah. If you're an outspoken woman, not much respect, yeah. 
I mean, look at Hillary. Yeah, she was great, much more intelligent. Yeah, won the 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 uh, uh, what do you, popular vote. Yeah, but she had to fight against this thing of, you know, there's got to be a man there that gives you the stamp of approval or tells you what to do, and you, you've got to please him. And meanwhile, do you remember the debates? And Trump was like walking in back of her like he was stalking, stalking her. It was creepy, totally creepy. And I don't know if the guys even noticed that, but the women would. You know, some guy walking, yeah, stalking you. So, um, but women so often just go along with that. That's how you get your stamp of approval. You're sweet. Yes, let's all be sweet, girls. <laughs> yeah, there's boys will be boys, but they never say girls will be girls. Boys will be boys means the guys can do all sorts of horrible things. And, well, that's just natural. But the girls, you know, you, you got to stay home with mom and make, you know, do the dishes. <laughs> you didn't stay at home and mom, with mom and do the dishes, yeah. Yeah, you rebelled. You what? Your family's not like that? My family's not like that. We've three girls and, you know, my father washes the dishes. Oh. And then I eat before my grandfather, so it's quite a different okay. upbringing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, just something, you know, if we're practicing you know, cherishing others more than ourselves, then to be aware of these kinds of attitudes that we have hidden away, you know? Okay, so let's go back to the text. Uh, we did the part of exchanging with the person inferior. We're on verse 147 now, exchanging with the person who is uh, equal to us. Yeah, so competition. Yeah. And we're coming from a culture where competition is seen as good. Yeah. Democracy and competition. Everybody's got to be like that. And this is part of the colonial problem is that some cultures don't work well under democracy. They don't have the the way of thinking necessary, you know. Sometimes you look in this country: do people really have the right mind for democracy? What's happening now? Yeah, but you know the, all the these kinds of assumptions. Okay, so you're equal. You're exchanging with somebody who's equal to you. Okay, so you're you're. You're your own competitor, you know, looking back at your old self. Okay. 
in order that I may excel, he who is regarded as equal to me, I, uh, I shall definitely strive to attain material gain and honor for myself, even by such means as verbal dispute. Okay, so you're your competitor looking back at your old self and you're saying, yeah, this guy thinks he's equal to me, but yeah, I'm going to show him who's who and I'm superior. I'm going to compete with him. I will have more profit in business. I will have more material gain. Okay. It, you know, maybe I can be a better people pleaser than he can and get more material gain that way. I shall uh, get the honor for myself. I want to be a big shot and have everybody notice who I am. Because if I'm a big shot, then it means I'm a good person. Yeah? So it doesn't matter how you're, what you're a big shot in, yeah, as long as you have the front of having power and control, then people, quote, quote, respect you. Actually, it's not respect. It's fear. Fear and being afraid of somebody and respecting somebody are two very, very different things. Okay? But we're sitting there, I'm going to do better than this guy. I'm going to have more honor. I'm going to have more material things. I'm going to have, you know, whatever it is in this society that I need to have to show that I am superior. Hmm? Okay, so you're looking back at your old self with that attitude. Then you go on. By all means, I shall make clear to the entire world all the good qualities I have. Yeah. But I shall not let anyone hear of any good qualities he may have. Okay, so you're, you're, you know, looking back at yourself. Yeah, I'm going to show everybody how superior I am than that guy. So whatever it is you choose to compete about, yeah, then you compete in that area. And we compete about the most stupid things sometimes. You know, what we do to get, to be noticed and to get praise sometimes is so stupid. But when we want honor, yeah, and we want to show that we're better than somebody else, we do that. Yeah. It's like, well, I go around and pick up all the trash in the environment, even after all the guys who are, who are uh, throwing their stuff all around, you know, all the trash around there. I go around and pick up the bubblegum wrappers and the uh, ties and the discarded items from the workshop, from the work area. You know, I'm superior. Look how much I sacrifice to go and keep the abbey clean. Yeah. And so you do that. And the whole time you're picking up all this garbage, saying, I'm such a good partitioner. I'm putting myself lower than others. I'm very humble. Yeah, I'm the most humble person. In <laughs> yeah, I'm the most.
most humble person. Everybody should respect me for my humility. Yeah. So it's it's a rather stupid thing to compete with. But, you know, if we can get some added, you know, benefit of how people look at us, I planted the irises. Yeah. I, you know, schlepped this big branch that broke off a tree. I did this. I, I, I. I set up for the teaching this morning. Yeah. I cleaned up after the teaching this morning. I'm sitting up straight. I'm the best Dharma student. I, I, I. Yeah. We have an organizational chart, and I'm on many committees because I do so many things so well. Yeah. And everybody looks at me and says, how wonderful you are. But I'm just working very humbly for the benefit of the community. I'm I'm not looking for accolades. But they better notice what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah. I'm in charge. I'm the... A uh, person who gives out the jobs every day. What do you call it? Yeah, I'm the office service facilitator today, so I can tell everybody else what to do. They can't tell me what to do. I can tell them. Ooh, yeah. But I do it in such a nice way that they all love me. <laughs> or you know, you you don't you're you're not doing it through people pleasing. It's like okay, I'm the offering service facilitator. You go here and do this. You go here and do that. I don't want to hear what you'd want to do. You just do it. I told you, and you do this and you do that, and you know, no back talk here. Okay, get out and go to work, fellas. You know. And then you realize that you you sound like your parents. <laughs> you ever been in a situation and realize, oh, yeah, okay. So by all means, I shall make clear to the entire world all the good qualities I have, but I shall not let anyone hear of any good qualities he may have. So you look back at your old self and say, oh, well, that guy thinks he has some good qualities, but I'm not going to tell anybody about it. Every time I talk about that person, I'm going to tear them down because I'm superior. You know, this competitive model. Yeah. So this is very, you know, the purpose of this is to, we exchange places with with our old self. And then we get an idea of how other people may look at us. Okay. And also, then when we go back to being in the position of our old self, yeah, we we recognize more uh, the trips that we're on. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's one for you. 
A149. Also, okay, so I'm not a, going to just, you know, not let anybody know my old self's good qualities. But uh, also, I shall hide all my faults. I will be venerated, but not he. I will find a great deal of material gain. I will be honored, but he shall not. Okay. So again, putting ourselves competing, and we're better. And you choose something to compete in. Yeah. And like I said, it can be some stupid, ridiculous thing, but we do it in order to look better. Okay. And then you you watch what we do when we feel when we're competing. Yeah. I mean how we're we're so we dislike the person we're competing with because they're too close to us and we're competing and they may come out better. You know? And like they cannot come out better. No way. Because I'm better. So I've got to trash them and put them down, spread all their bad qualities. Yeah. Make it apparent to the world that I disapprove of them, that I don't like them because they, you know, they think they're a big shot. They're competing with me, but they think that they're more important than me. You know, I don't want to be near people like that. I'm more important. You know, why are they so arrogant? I'm going to show them. Yeah, but in the meantime, I'm not going to be anywhere near them because they drive me crazy because they're doing this and that and the other thing. But the real reason they drive me crazy is that they might be better than me in some areas. Yeah, and that just can't be. Can't be. So in those areas where I might lose... I make sure I'm not there to compete. Because if I'm not there to compete, then I can't lose. Yeah? Okay, 150. For a long time, I shall look with pleasure at his being made inferior. He will become the laughing stock of all regarded among everyone as an object of scorn and derision. Okay, so you're not just competing to be better, but you're going to make that person lower. Okay, and I will look at pleasure of how I won the competition, and that guy is lower, and how is he going to hold up his head when... I'm around because I am superior. Mm -hmm. He will become the laughing stock at all. Everybody will point his finger, their finger at that person. Look what they're doing. Yeah. And how can he be equal with me in learning, intelligence, and what they do with the mind? Form, 
you know, your body, how athletic you are, how strong you are, how good looking you are. Yeah. Class, social class. What social class were you brought up in? Yeah. Do you compete with people in your own social class? How much do you do you judge people? And when you go into a room, evaluate people according to their social class. In the Vinaya, um, at one point, Upali wanted to ordain. I think Upali was a butcher, wasn't he? No, her, her barber, barber. And there were some Sakya sons who wanted to ordain too. So the Sakyans were the class of um, the the warrior governing class, and the barbers were the I don't know, were they in the third class or the fourth one? Were they with the merchants or they were with the the really, I think the low one, the very lowest one, not the untouchables, one step up from that, okay? But the Sakya uh, sons realized how they thought that they were so good because they were from the upper caste. And, you know, because you sit, in order of your ordination, yeah, they were all supposed to get ordained at the same time. The Sakya sons said Upali should get ordained first. So even though he was ordained just, I don't know, an hour before the Sakyas, in ordination order, he sat in front of the other ones. So this was very smart, I mean, because the Sakyas realized that they had a problem with arrogance. And so they deliberately put it so that the barber got ordained before them so that they had the opportunity to put themselves lower. Yeah. So now we all praise the Sakya sons because they were so humble. <laughs> okay. But... Uh, you know, he will become the laughing stock at all. This guy's totally incapable. Yeah. In learning intelligence, how they look, their social class or their wealth. You know, I have more money. I have this. I have that. <sighs> yeah. And I mean, this is how society runs, isn't it? You know, you, you, I mean, Donnie is just such an, a good example of all of this in all these areas. Yeah. And then we see if, you know, you're in that position of always putting yourself up, yeah, then you're also in the position of criticizing everybody. And so you have no faults. Everything people don't like, you know, if they're calling you out on something, it's a witch hunt. Yeah, you didn't do anything. It's a witch hunt. They're thinking they want to put you down. And then you try and defend your position. And then that's really wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, trying to defend your position, criticizing the other person, trying to be more popular on Fox News and CNN and, you know, whatever social group you're in that you're competing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so those are the verses for competing with somebody who's, who's equal to yourself. 
exchanging there. Then 140, uh, 151 is, um, no, no, we just did 151. 152 is, um, we're, con- we're exchanging ourselves with someone who's higher and looking down on ourselves and berating ourselves. Actually, that could be 151 could, could be with that one too. Yeah. Okay. So thus, so, so now you're exchanging with somebody who is higher than you and you're looking down on your old self. Yeah. Because we all have somebody who is lower than us, somebody who's equal to us, somebody who's better than us. All of us have that. So here we're exchanging with somebody who is better than us, looking down on our old self. Okay. Thus, upon hearing of my good qualities that have been made uh, well known to all, I shall thoroughly enjoy the satisfaction of the pleasant, tingly sensation that occurs. Because now I am superior to everybody else. I can look down on them. I can boss them around. Yeah, I'm the one who gives, the, gives them power to do. I, I'm the one who authorizes them. Yeah, I'm superior, so I look down on them. Okay, so this is when we are, you know, looking, um, we're we're, uh, exchanging ourselves with somebody who's higher and looking down at our old self. Okay, so now you're the big guy criticizing your, your old self. Even though he has some possessions, If he is working for me, I shall give him just enough to live on. And by force, I'll take the rest. Okay? This colonial mentality. It's exactly what happened. Yeah? And, you know, he has a few possessions, but he's working for me. He's inferior. I'm now the big guy. So I just give him what he needs, and I'll take the rest. So it's not only colonial. I mean, this is uh, really, when we look at what happened during COVID, yeah, the people who were wealthy stayed home, or they went to live in their second house in the countryside, or they hired other people to go out and go grocery shopping and so on. And who were the people that kept society going during COVID? It was the people in the lower class, yeah, who work who uh, worked in the grocery stores, who were exposed to more people, and thus had a higher death rate of COVID. Yeah, because the rich people just you know stayed in their own little cocoon, looked down on the lower people who were at the gas station working in the grocery store, delivering food door to door to the people who were wealthy, yeah, who didn't venture out. They, they were the ones doing the home health care, going into other people's houses to take care of elderly parents or 
people who were suffering even from COVID. So, you know, the social inequality that, that was so apparent, you know, and who lost their jobs? It wasn't the wealthy people. Yeah. Many, you know, either middle class or, or the immigrant population. Yeah. But, but, you know, and then people just took that for granted. Yeah. In this country's, History, you know, who does the hard labor? The immigrants. Yeah. So you let them come in the country when you need workers. And then you, after that, you make laws prohibiting them from immigrating. Yeah. So in the 19th century, you know, there was so many uh, incredible influx of people to America. They welcomed all the immigrants who all, you know, worked in the, in the, um, you know, the lower jobs that were dangerous, you know, or the sweatshops or who knows where. And then, you know, the, the people who, whose families had been there longer, even though they were also immigrants, uh, made immigration laws in the early 20s and said, these people can't come in anymore. Yeah. I mean, who built the railway across the northern part? It was the Chinese and Japanese and Hawaii's, Hawaiians. Yeah. The railway was finished. Okay. You got people can't come in anymore. Okay. So here you're being that top class that's looking down at yourself who happens to be in the lower class compared to that class, okay? Or if you go to college, well, that just means you're better than somebody who hasn't gone to college. Yeah, And especially if you went to Raffles Girls School, then you were, you know, the cream of the crop. Did you go to Raffles Girls School? No, you didn't. You didn't. Yeah, yeah. No, you didn't. No. No. How about you? You didn't live in Singapore. You couldn't go to Raffles Girls School. Oh, that's really too bad. Yeah, yeah. Any of the guys? Did you go to Raffles Girls School? You know. <laughs> Okay, so, you know, if you have that status, boy, your life is made. Yeah, And so in Singapore, I mean, starting out, when you are really literally this big, yeah, you, your parents want to make sure that you have a good career and a lot of money. And so that means that you have to get in to a superior kindergarten. Yeah. All children are not equal. You're at age four. You start cultivating a CV so that you can get into the best kindergarten. It's true, isn't it? I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, it's true. You get into the best kindergarten, the best elementary school, 
Yeah, the best uh, middle school, best high school. Yeah, you 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 don't go to Poly. Who goes to Poly? Those people. You know, we go to straight to university. Yeah, and and from the time you're this big, you are set on that track, with all those expectations on top of your head. And I think sometimes it, it, this happens in families that are in the U.S. that are involved with um, tech companies. You know, I was reading. Yeah, is it, is it true? Yeah, and uh, you know that that at some of the neighborhoods where all the parents, you know, are working in Silicon Valley, the kids have so much social angst and there's a high suicide rate among kids because there's so much pressure on them from the time they're little to excel. Yeah? And we call this creating the cause for a happy life. Huh? Yeah? So you... you Force your kids with all this pressure. And then, of course, you know, your kids need to go to therapy because, you know, mentally, they're, they just, you know, they hate themselves. They feel inferior. They're also involved in competition. And, of course, they're less than, you know. So the parents will happily send their kids to therapists, the best therapists. Yeah, because, and the kids don't feel loved because the parents were too busy making a lot of money being successful. And then they're happy to make a lot of money and use that money so that they pay for their kids who feel unloved to go to therapy. You know, if they spent more time at home and really showed love to their kids, you know, their kids wouldn't be in these predicaments. Okay, but you know, I'm kind of trying to show how how we as sentient beings, you know, we want happiness, and then we do stupid things that create misery for ourselves and for the people we care about the most. Yeah, his happiness and comfort will decline, and I shall always cause him harm. Yeah. So now, instead of being the inferior one, you're the inf superior one looking down, and you're going to get even. Okay. For hundreds of times in this cycle of rebirth, he has caused harm to me. Okay. But now, I'm going to get uh, even. Okay, so that's exchanging yourself with people who are inferior. Now Shantideva is speaking more in, in general, okay, about um, working for the benefit of others. Because of desiring to benefit yourself, O oh mind, all weariness you have gone through over countless past eons has only succeeded in achieving misery. 
Okay. This is the conclusion of following the self-centered mind and thinking we are more important. Our happiness is more important. Others are inferior. We're better than them. Yeah. The world should stop because my little toe hurts. You know, this kind of mentality. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you feel here in the community? Yeah. You have a little bit, you don't feel so well. It's like a national disaster, isn't it? I, I don't feel well. Okay. Yeah. I got to stay in bed. It's actually a good excuse to stay in bed. And I'm tired of being with all those people. So if I say I don't feel well, then I have a good excuse to not be with them. Oh, I see that some people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah? Mm. Okay. But, you know, this is the, the conclusion of following the self-centered thought. Over countless past eons, it's only succeeded in achieving misery. Because even if we succeed in getting what we want, very often, I mean, we've used crooked means. We've lied, we've deceived, yeah, we've stolen, you know. But my stealing is not stealing. In fact, don't even call it stealing. It's just the company doesn't pay me well enough, so I'm entitled to take some of the things that are available, you know, at the company. Uh, I use the credit card there, take my family out to dinner on the company's uh, bill, you know, saying it was a business meeting. And, uh, you know, I'm entitled to do that. It's not stealing because they don't pay me enough. Yeah. I'm not lying. I'm not lying. I really do have a stomach ache for, you know, five seconds. And so uh, that's why I'm not showing up because, uh, you know, or there was an emergency. You know, I have to go take care of something. So I'm not turning up for work today. You know? But it's, I'm, I'm not lying and deceiving. I have a very good reason for it. You know? Yeah, I took out the bug spray and I'm spraying to kill all the bugs. But I'm not killing. You know, I'm protecting all the other people from the mosquitoes. Okay. Or I'm not criticizing somebody. I'm just telling the truth about them so that you know what they're really like. But I'm not criticizing them. Okay. So, the, you know, the self-centered attitude manifests in all these ways. And then... You know, it is the chief thing that impedes bodhicitta. Yeah? Because in that case, the self-centered attitude is I'm working for my own liberation. Yeah, I'm not working for Buddhahood. That's, it takes at least three countless gradients. That's too long. I can attain my own nirvana 
in three lives, seven lives. I'm just going to do it quick. And that is how kind I am and compassionate to sentient beings. I'm getting myself out of samsara. So you see, I really have care for sentient beings. I'm getting myself out. But good luck, everybody else. Uh, you know, I hope somebody else kind of comes along and teaches you and guides you. Because I'm busy enjoying nirvana. Are you jealous? <laughs> okay. I mean, it's not that like that. But it is like that. Yeah. My Dharma practice is more important than anybody else's. Yeah. I want to go to these teachings. I want to go to this and that. I don't want to, you know, sit here and be on 10 rotas at the same time. <laughs> okay. Therefore, I shall definitely engage myself in working for the benefit of others. Okay, so self-centered thought, we've, we've succeeded in showing it, you know, all its machinations and how in the, own, in the end it only produces suffering. So now we say, therefore, I shall definitely engage myself in working for the benefit of others. For since the words of the Mighty One are infallible, I shall behold its advantages in the future. So Madhi One, Buddha, yeah, if we follow the Buddha's guidance, if we follow what the Buddha said is virtuous and non-virtuous, which also makes sense. We're not doing that. It's it's a uh, you know, it's an extremely hidden phenomena, but it also makes sense, you know, that certain things. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that killing and stealing and so on are non-virtuous, yeah? You don't, yeah, it's not a big thing. Okay. So, studying the Dharma, following the Buddha's recommendations about what to practice and what to abandon, what to cultivate, what to release and let go of, Okay then we'll behold all the advantages of doing that in the future. Whereas if we just continually follow the self-centeredness, we're digging ourselves in, in a hole, in a deeper and deeper hole. Okay. Now, this does not mean that right away we've got to go around and be Susie Cream Cheese and and please, it doesn't mean you have to be a people pleaser because we often interpret that. Oh, now I'm going to work for others, so I'm going to be people pleaser, chief people, people pleaser. Yeah, then I'll get approval. So it's not that. It's really changing deep inside of our own heart. So we actually, in our heart, yeah, care about other people. Yeah, and we respect them not because of status, but because they're human, you know, they're living beings alive who have the uh, potential to become fully awakened. Yeah, and because in previous lives they've been kind to us. And they're being kind to us in this life, and they'll be kind to us in future lives. 
Okay, so there's reasons for what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, oh, I always held myself as superior. Oh, what a bad person I am. I'm so selfish. That's, that's not what we're trying to get to. That is not a virtuous attitude. I'm such a bad person. I'm so selfish. Yeah, it's self-centeredness is my enemy. Self-centeredness is what hinders me from growing. It's not that I'm a bad person. Because yeah. if you say I'm a bad person, then you just sign off on yourself. Okay, I had a friend who, uh, she was a long-term Dharma student, and uh, we were talking one day, and she said, she was telling me a story of going to ask uh, one of the high lamas, it might have been Lati Rinpoche or somebody, really well-respected lama, and who didn't know English. Yeah, so the whole thing was through a translator. And her question was, um, you know, I look and I see how self-centered I am, and then I criticize myself for being so self-centered, and I feel like I'm just such a horrible person for being that selfish, and so I start beating up on myself for being selfish. Yeah, and so she's, she said, is this the right way to understand this meditation? about the disadvantages of self-centeredness and the benefits of cherishing others. So she said that to the translator, who also was Tibetan. And Tibetans don't have this same kind of thing of putting themselves down the way Inji's do. It's a different culture. Yeah? They don't have that problem. And so anyway, the translator said that to Lanti Rinpoche, who replied, oh, yes, that's the right way to, to view the meditation. So she then went on for a long time just criticizing herself for being self-centered. And then that one day when we happened to be talking about it, you know, I said, no, that's not the way to understand it. And, you know, the whole confusion had come because, you know, the translator and Rimache had came from a different culture where, you know, you don't beat up on yourself the way people in a culture that stresses competition beat up on themselves for not being as good. Yeah. So that really made me stop and think when I saw that, because when we were talking, you know, I mean, then all of a sudden she said, I was like, she, her, all of her tension of self-hatred just went, oh, I don't have to hold that. That's not the way the Buddha is trying to make me feel. Okay, so a good rule of thumb, I think, is if you come out of a meditation session criticizing yourself, putting yourself down, you've somehow come to, to the wrong conclusion. If you come out of a meditation session feeling you're superior to everybody else, you've also come to the wrong conclusion. Okay? So we're really seeing here how we have to make sure we understand properly 
what the Buddha is saying, what Shantideva is saying, and not hear it through our own cultural assumptions. Yeah. Okay, 157. Um, if in the past I had practiced this act of exchanging self for others, a situation such as this, devoid of the magnificence and bliss of a Buddha, could not possibly have come about. So this is saying, if in the past, instead of putting myself first, yeah, as I'm the most important, what I want, I should always have my way. Other people are less than. Yeah, if so, if I had gone through this process of exchanging self and others, yeah, then my present situation where I am devoid of all magnificence, I don't have the bliss of being a Buddha. You know, I'm stuck in samsara, still competing with everybody else, still engaging in the, in the ten non-virtues. Yeah, still putting myself down. This situation could not possibly have come about. Why? Because I would have created virtue by cherishing others instead of creating non-virtue by just being focused on myself. Okay, is that clear? Yeah. So 158, therefore, just as I have come to hold as I, these drops of sperm and blood of others, likewise, through acquaintance, I should always come to regard all others as I. You exchange. Yeah? So, therefore, just as I have come to hold as I these drops of sperm and blood of others, okay? So, our present body, you know, it came from the sperm and blood of our parents, sperm and egg of our parents, yeah, and all the food that we've ever eaten. So, the farmers, and if you've eaten life, uh, eaten um, meat, then, you know, our present situation due to all the animals who gave up their lives so that we could have a hamburger. You know, when you think about it, would you give up your life for somebody else's lunch? Yeah, is that the way to treat other sentient beings? Okay. But again, yeah, people don't see it. You know, human beings are superior, animals are inferior. God created animals to serve to serve humans, so it's fine to kill them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I just thought of a story which I won't tell. Um, okay. So therefore, just as I, I have come, you know, this thing is, is from Bernie and Adele, plus all the animals I ate as a kid, plus, you know, all the farmers who worked very hard for the vegetables and everything else I ate. Yeah. But I don't look at that and say, oh, this is due to the kindness of others. 
I look at this and I say, this is me or this is mine. And all of a sudden it has a different meaning. Yeah. If you hurt this, yeah, even a mosquito bites me. You hurt me. How dare you hurt me? Yeah, I don't care if you're hungry. Yeah, you can wait. You can bite somebody else. Don't you bite me. Okay. Or this is my body. My body. I don't want to sit in the middle seat on an airplane. Yeah. It's my my body deserves a better seat. I deserve, you know, I need a comfortable bed. Not too hard, not too soft. Yeah. I want the the temperature to be exactly pleasing to me. So don't tell anybody that I'm going to go change the thermostat. <laughs> yeah? Okay. So, um, you know, and that all comes from thinking this is I and mine. Okay? That's the view of the personal identity, isn't it? That's part of the ignorance that keeps us trapped in samsara. And there it is alive and well, and running our lives day to day. Okay. So, just as I've taken these things from the sperm and, sperm and egg of others and the food from others, and I've called it I, and then put a whole lot of importance on it. Likewise, through acquaintance of exchanging self and others, I should also come to regard all others. Yeah. So if it's just through habituation that we've come to look at this organic stuff as I and mine, then we can look at others' bodies as I and mine also. It's just a matter of familiarity. Now you're going to say, oh, well, I don't know. But think of how parents look at their kids. Their kid is actually a separate person. But whatever happens to the kid, the parents feel. Yeah. If you praise the child, the parents feel like they've been praised. If you trash their child, the parents feel like they've been trashed. Yeah. And actually, you know, there's nothing I and mine if you're a parent about your kid. Your kid is not your personal property, and they're not an extension of yourself. But from the, the mind of the parents, yes, they are, because we created them. Yeah. We created them, so... They're, they're us. I mean, they have our genes, so there must be us. Yeah. They're mine because I brought them up. And like we were talking on Mother's Day, they, you know, when the child 
does well, the parents are over the moon. Yeah, when the child is ill, the parents are upset. Okay, so you can see, you know, this thing of through habituation, then you can start to really cherish others like you cherish yourself. Yeah. So, but here, when we say cherish others like ourselves, again, it doesn't mean that we become preoccupied with them, with all our machinations, but it means, you know, they are important. And we're going to look out for their welfare, you know, before we look out for our own welfare, because they've been kind to us. Yeah. And we want to repay that kindness, regardless of whether they've been our parents or not. They also have been kind in terms of whatever work they've done in society to provide the the clothes we wear, the food we eat, the, the shelter that we stay safe in, everything else, yeah. So seeing ourselves as, as part of the, this dependent thing of uh, sentient beings and working for the good of the whole group, yeah, not just so I can shine. Okay, let's pause here if you have questions or comments. I remember when I was a kid growing up in this little town, I had no clue about class. Just, I didn't understand it until one day somebody said to me, it was probably my cousin whose dad was a doctor, and he probably said something like, well, your dad's just a blue collar worker. And I said, what do you mean? Because my dad was an electrician, he owned his own business, and I said, "Well, what do you mean by that?" And he said, "Well, you're you're just lesser than us. My dad's a doctor," and so I felt great shame about this at first. Mm -hmm. But then it also occurred to me—I think I might have been eleven—that I also had this kind of feeling towards kids whose families were farmers, and they didn't have the same kind of clothing that even my family had. And then I realized, you know, I never ever said it out loud, but I had that feeling towards them. Yeah. And then I was really ashamed, but in a good sense of ashamed, mm -hmm. not, it just was a very big awakening that yeah. this is how the world is. And I don't want to be part of that. I remember feeling as a kid, because my family was middle class and I don't know, I was always reading stuff about oppression <laughs> and the injustice in the world and uh, and especially my generation you know you have to eat all your food because kids are starving in china yeah and so that whole thing of uh, and so i i always felt like th this world is not fair why do i have food and other kids in africa or whatever don't have food you know this is not fair. The world should not be like this. But then all the people, you know, the adults just kind of, yeah, they gave to charity, but they didn't have this feeling of, uh, you know, like you felt about, you know, oh, I don't feel good about having better than others. The friend who's a lawyer and uh, he's always complaining about the homeless. 
it really makes me angry. <laughs> yeah. You know, they just, you know, prop yourself up, you know, get a job, you know, doesn't talk about, you know, costing $1,500 for a one bedroom apartment in Denver, you know, it's the median. So, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if you're poor, it, it's it's your fault. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Nothing to do with how the social, social. structure yeah. and economic uh, opportunities. Yeah, and this is the whole American myth of picking yourself up by your bootstraps. And if you don't have boots, you can't do that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So at the beginning, when you were talking about how. Um, we have these assumptions about how other people should behave and we sort of enforce it. We go along with it without knowing it. And I just, for me, the, you know, being a woman, the, the most painful times when I felt like I was being held down is by other women um, who I thought were basically upholding the system. And I'm sure they have their own personal reasons and maybe they don't recognize it at all. But I think it's something, if there's a group who wants to sort of raise up and empower themselves, they really need to look very closely at how they relate to each other. Because some of the worst cruelty comes from people in your own group who will step on others just to get a little bit ahead. And history is full of this stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they've done um, studies on this. And I remember uh, Primo Levi, he was a Holocaust, he was in Auschwitz, I think that camp, one camp or another, for the war. And then he wrote about it afterwards. And he said that, you know, you would think that all the people in the concentration camps would support each other and and they were more numerous than the gods, guards, that they would then rebel and do something. And he said, no, what happened is among all the people imprisoned in the camps, they competed with each other. Yeah. And so within the camps, you know, because what there were Jews, there were gays, there were, there were Romas, there were all sorts of people, POWs. So within the camp, they developed a social strata. But the, but the Nazis weren't included in that. Yeah. So they, they look and they see that oppressed groups very often, you know, do this within themselves. Yeah. And that's what you're describing. And I, I've, you know, witnessed it. And I think it's, um, one of the, the big things. You know, that as women, we need to change. And whatever group you're in, you know, to uh, to not to really value the other people in that group and praise them and put them up. But you see, if you put up somebody else in your group, then they're better than you are. You don't have any chance of competing with the people on the top. They're out of your 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 stage. You can't compete with them. So you compete with the people within your own group. And you're better and they're worse. And it's poison. It's poison. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's something definitely we should be very aware of. I have a good example of that. Uh, when I was uh, going through nursing school, we were all taught as soon as a physician walks into the nurse's station, our station, you stand up and give them your chair immediately. You always do that. That's how we started out. In the maybe late 80s or something, you know, um, it changed a little bit. It was so interesting uh, when physicians, sometimes physicians would uh, throw a fit in the nurse's station and they would scream and yell at one nurse for doing something they didn't like. And a bunch of us got together. I don't even know how it came to be, but we did anyhow. And we started calling this thing a white team. And when a physician was doing that, we got on the uh, intercom and through the whole hospital and said, white team, uh, third floor, nurse's station. <laughs> and any nurse that could get away would come and we would surround this <laughs> physician, you know, you know, really attacking this one nurse. And we would just surround the area and watch. <laughs> we didn't say a thing. And, you know, pretty soon he started looking around, you know, and he just shut up <laughs> and he walked away. And it didn't take but a few of those before their behavior changed tremendously. Huh. It was so interesting. <laughs> it was the best thing ever. <laughs> yeah. Nonviolent protest. <laughs> yeah. 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 And there's nothing they can criticize you for and say you're being uppity. <laughs> just heard some independent like uh you know progressive little liberal journal journalism of the black lives matter in denver you know mm -hmm. and i don't think that there was much violence or property destruction in denver during that protest mm -hmm. but the uh the fbi planted an ex-con to try and sell guns to the <laughs> blm organizers huh. so I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I forgot my train of thought about how this related to this topic, but yeah, um, yeah. Social, well, social, social structure. They, they didn't. I think they were afraid that you know people are changing things. You know, we need to, you know, stop them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make them look bad. Okay, let's dedicate.